One, two, three, four. Screen time! Screen time! Screen time! Screen time! Screen time! It's my screen time too! And welcome to It's My Screen Time 2, the podcast where two moms review the best and worst in children's programming, from Netflix reboots and YouTube shorts to Disney classics and Pixar blockbusters. We watch, you listen, find out what you can tolerate watching for family movie night, what to avoid altogether, and what you'll want to watch alone, voluntarily. I'm Katie. And I'm Deborah. And I have two kids, Jay, he's five, and Kenny, he's two. And I have three kids, Tony is 10, and Libby and Nate are 7. And guys, today we're absolutely thrilled to welcome Scott Sava to the podcast. Scott is dad to twins Brendan and Logan, who are 17, but savvy listeners might recognize his name from our Animal Crackers episode. Scott penned the original Animal Crackers graphic novel, or do we call it a comic? I'm always confused about the terminology. (laughs) And he also wrote and directed the Netflix adaptation we reviewed. Welcome, Scott. Hi, nice to be here. So you made Animal Crackers through your publishing house and production company, Blue Dream Studios. And while we wait with bated breath for Netflix, who is famous for its transparency, to decide whether Animal Crackers is a hit for them, what are you working on? Do you have new comics content on the way, or are you just trapped in the pandemic loop trying to teach your kids math? Yeah, it's it's Groundhog Day every day here. <laughs> um, I, I have the 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 cool thing is I actually spent you know my boys are now seventeen and I've spent the last seventeen years making books for them. And so I, th- I think I used their childhood just being inspired by everything. And I've written books about flying pirates and aliens and pet robots. And my grandparents are secret agents and Cameron and his dinosaurs and anything that interested them interested me. And so um, I feel like, you know, I really uh, I don't have to create anything new, though I'd, I'd love to. But I, I think I've kind of I've got a backlog of stories that I'd like to make. So yeah, I'm kind of in this waiting pattern just to see um, what what the rest of my life is going to be like. It's 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 really just a weird thing. I feel like I've climbed the mountain and I don't know what's next. Um, and uh, so it's a, it's a very weird kind of holding pattern. It's kind of a microcosm of the state of the world, one might say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It really is. I, I, you know, I keep myself busy um, painting because um, I was a painter. I went to sc- art school in San Francisco for uh, to be an illustrator. And so um, the whole movie thing kind of snuck up on me. And and so I, I, I think I, I get there's that need to constantly create. And I and I get that by just painting in a, in a journal and uh, doing like a little right now I'm going through uh Hamilton characters. <laughs> and so my son really loves Hamilton. And so I've been painting all of Jefferson and Lafayette and, and the, the Schuyler sisters and, and just kind of going through all of that. And that's been a lot of fun. That's great. Hamilton's been the quarantine soundtrack at my house too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, it <laughs> really is. The music it, is good. <laughs> yeah. It's so fun. And, uh, you know, I, we, we got to, um, through a really strange set of circumstances, we got to go see uh, Hamilton last year on Broadway. And uh, I knew nothing about it other than my son was, you know, like a huge fan. 
And so I kind of went in and was just blown away because I didn't know any of the songs. I didn't know anything. And I think that's the best way to do it is to not know about it and, and see it for the first time, especially in person, was just amazing. Just amazing. Oh, yeah. That's I'm jealous great. for sure. So we always like to start off the podcast, Scott, with a quick story about how awesome or sometimes awful our kids are because we like to get the parenting stories out of the way. I have a Hamilton Hamilton adjacent story. My seven-year-old Libby has been learning how to play the violin and she has been playing the Schuyler sisters on the violin. We kind of figured out how she can play a little version of it and it's the cutest. That's so cool. Semi-in tune Skylar sisters I've ever heard. <laughs> well, it's a nice break from Go Tell Aunt Rody. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, how about you? Have your kids been up to anything fun? Oh God, teenagers stuck at home in quarantine. Um, a lot of eye rolling, a lot of heavy <laughs> sighs. <laughs> but uh, no, you know. Um, uh, Brendan is the athletic one. I'm now the third tallest person in the house. Uh, <laughs> Brendan is six foot four and Logan is over six feet. And, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm five, nine. Uh, but, um, Brendan likes to force me to ride my bike as far as possible. So he is, he is a, you know, a drill sergeant at that. So he's been keeping me healthy and, uh, Logan and I, we did a couple music videos during the pandemic. We did one for Huey Lewis, uh, and uh, we're working on one for Howard Jones. Um, and um, yeah, if you if you get a chance to uh, look up Huey Lewis's uh, music video for "While We're Young," it was the song that Huey wrote for the movie, cool. and we did it. We did it uh, to look like a 16-bit video game, uh, and uh, so so that was a lot of fun. Um, and then two years ago. We did one uh, when Logan was first diagnosed with Crohn's. We um, we made Muppets and we did a music video for Toad the Wet Sprocket for the for that. So uh, if you look up Toad the Wet Sprockets, um, one of those days, um, you'll see the the music video for that. And and both both artists liked it so much uh, that they used it for their official music video, which was really cool. So my son, who's still in high school, has two music videos <laughs> already out, which is really kind of weird. But that's 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 been that. We've been doing that, and uh, we've been. Uh, Logan really likes trains, and uh, he loves everything mechanical, and so he wanted to learn about cars. And I know nothing about cars, so a couple of years ago we bought an old '67 Cougar, and we've been fixing her up. So that's been another thing we've been doing. And then Brendan has been learning how to cook. Wow, oh, that's awesome! Yeah, you guys are so busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it doesn't feel like that because, you know, again, just the days just kind of just drag along and you're like, I'm not doing anything, but mm-hmm. it's nice to at least set some goals and kind of accomplish them. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of accomplishing goals, they have opened up the swimming pool at my son's school for swimming lessons again. Oh. And they are no longer having group lessons. They have to be private lessons. So we put Jay and Kenny in a private lesson together. So the two of them are together. And we've been doing a lot of swimming at home since the pandemic started. And we're pretty loosey-goosey about the social niceties, I guess, because it's just our family. 
But on Monday, they had their first swim lesson. And when it was done, Jay just popped right out of the pool. And it wasn't completely empty in there. There were other, a couple other instructors. There were a couple other private lessons going on at the, under, the other end of the pool. And Jay just hopped right out of the pool and took his trunks off. Just like completely <laughs> naked. <laughs> and he saw uh, nothing wrong with it. It was just, what? The locker rooms are closed now. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> That's cute. That's yeah. wonderful. I miss that age. <laughs> He's going to hate that I told that story on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so screen time in the news. This week we read a HollywoodReporter.com article by Rick Porter titled How Children's Shows Lead the Way in Diversity on TV. And I'm excited to discuss this with you, Scott, because you're a real live filmmaker and creator. Um, the article covered a UCLA diversity report from 2019 that has really good news, scripted series for kids currently in production, over half of them have lead characters from underrepresented populations. The article goes on to cover how studios are trying to diversify the creators, the characters, the staff behind the camera. This all reminded me of, um, remember Frances McDormand's Oscar speech from a couple years ago about the inclusion rider that everybody should be attaching yeah. to their projects. Yeah. The article reporter interviewed um, a number of like executives, agents, um, people in the business who all agreed that it's the right thing to do, but it's also just good business for establishing relationships with viewers who are going to become lifelong fans of Disney or Netflix or Nickelodeon if they see themselves reflected in the characters on the screens. Mm-hmm kind of a crass yeah. calculus but i guess i'm happy with the product <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's uh you know speaking as as uh both both uh a white person and a man and a man and straight um it's very easy to not to not see that and 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 you need i'll, I'll give you an example um uh I wrote the Dreamland Chronicles. It was a comic book, a web comic uh, for my boys when they were first born. And I would put a page up a day uh, of this comic. And it was about two boys, you know, uh, uh, brothers. They were twins. And uh, they go to this fantasy world. And um, the the fan base that I didn't know about, because um, I'm writing it for my boys, turned out to be teenage girls um, because they liked the strong there was an elf princess, there was a fairy, um, they, they liked those characters. And over the years, the story changed because of my interaction with the girls. And, you know, the input that I was getting on a daily basis, because you know, you're only putting up a page a day, so they're, they're micromanaging every page. <laughs> and I, I became a better writer and I became a better person because I was listening to the other gender and, and, and what, what interested them. And, and so I, I think just in general, as human beings, we become very myopic. We, we, we know what we like, we know, you know, our families. And, um, once you start to reach out to, um, a broader world and you start making TVs and movies and books that are going to reach a wider audience, you're not just writing for your family, you know, cause I, everything I do, I start off writing for my kids 
Mm-hmm. And and once it reaches a bigger audience, you have to realize that you're writing for other people's kids too. Um, when uh, Animal Crackers, I, I I'm sorry, I, I'm, this might take a bit if you guys are okay with this little backstory. No, <laughs> yeah, we're happy with it. Um, when 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 um, I had written a bunch of books and uh, we had gotten the opportunity to to make Animal Crackers, it did it fell through. We'll just say it fell through. I'm not going to go into the backstory of Harvey Weinstein and everything else, but it fell through. And um, but we were so close, and we were on food stamps at the time, and our house was in foreclosure, and we were really struggling. An artist is not, you know, you don't become an artist to make money. And uh, and my wife, she looked at me and she said, you know what? Because the boys were, I think maybe eight or nine at the time, and she said, you know. Um, I really think this is going to happen. She goes, I'll go back to work. Um, she, she had to leave the kids, which she didn't want to do. She took a temp job and she worked the docks first of all at target, unloading the docks at target until she got a temp job, uh, being a secretary and whatnot. And she worked for two years till I was able to finally find the money to make them, to make the movie, uh, fast forward, uh, another year later and Emily Blunt came on the film and originally uh, Zoe's character was kind of peripheral, we'll say, because Owen was the main character. And when Emily came on, we were like, oh my God, I we can't, she loved the script, but we can't have someone like Emily Blunt just have like 12 lines. And it was, I think, that aha moment where I realized that Owen and Zoe could be like me and my wife, Donna. They could be partners. They could make sacrifices individually. They can both do what's best for the family. They can both save the day. And and it took a little convincing to the team because it's not a traditional way of telling a story. I mean, if you look at Animal Crackers, Zoe's the one who makes the decision to go and save the circus. Zoe's the one who saves. And, and Mackenzie saves, you know, saves the circus at the end as well. And 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 it's a very I, I really tried to make it more of a family and and more of an equal thing. And Zoe's character became a very strong character because of that, because of my experience, but also just having strong women around me and learning about that. And I and I think it's it's easier for a woman to to see things from that point of view because she's lived that. It's easier for a person of color to see that. It's easier for gay and lesbians to see that. It's very hard for a straight white male to see that, and they need people to encourage. They need people to um, to keep telling those stories, so you can see, um, so you can see that. And so that's that's at least my point of view of it. And the last thing is, is that I keep getting messages from African American women who love Binkley's hair. <laughs> they think they're like, I, I just that's my hair. I can't believe I'm seeing my hair on the screen and it never occurred to me. My entire team is in Valencia, Spain and, and, you know, they're Spanish. They're not African American or they're not, they're not African, but, um, they just, there's something about it where there needs to be that representation. And so as a human being, as a creator, I'm trying to learn to see that and to be a better uh, person uh, for that. Oh, that's great. It's really, striking when you see something from your life represented on the screen like I remember this was like 20 or 25 years ago I have a my younger brother is an adopted Korean American and 
when we were growing up, not a lot of families looked like our family. My parents are white. I'm white. Um, and he's Korean American. And there was a commercial for Tylenol and it had a white dad and like a little Asian boy. And like the commercial is like the dad has a headache, but then he takes Tylenol. And so he can play with his son. And like, I started crying so hard <laughs> the first time I saw it. And I think it was just because it was looked like my family and I had yeah. never seen that in mainstream media before. So yeah. I love that filmmakers like yourself are working to be inclusive on screen and in staffing. I think that's wonderful. Yeah, that's extremely well put, both of you. I kind of hate the fact that it was a Tylenol commercial. Like, why does it have to be this global super brand that is reflecting that back to you? But I'm glad that it happened nonetheless. Yeah, it was really, I like, I remember the whole commercial, like, frame by frame, I think. Aww. And I, you know, I love it when families in, like, cartoons don't look alike. Mm-hmm. You know, I love yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so guys, today's topic, as you may have guessed, is Animal Crackers. It is a follow-up to our August 19th episode about the movie that premiered on Netflix, premiered on Netflix on July 23rd, in which a family uses a magical box of animal crackers to become performing animals and rescue their dying family circus. If you haven't heard that episode yet, you might want to listen there first. So we decided to cover Animal Crackers again because we reached out to Scott via Twitter and he was kind enough to let us know that he had some answers he'd like to share to our episode's biggest (laughs) questions. This is actually the first time that a creator has gotten the chance to take us to task for a review and we are actually a little bit nervous. I think I speak for both of us when I say that. (laughs) Scott, first things first. We used to start every episode of our podcast talking about our respective screen time policies, but we stopped doing that once it became clear that Deborah had very clear and well thought out screen time policies, and I was like the loosey-goosey goofus in our goofus and gallant (laughs) dynamic, and I just couldn't take it anymore. Um, (laughs) But as an author and a filmmaker and an all-around creator, do you feel like you have a unique approach to the question of screen time with your kids? I know they're older now, but do you feel like you approached it in any different way when they were younger? Um, yeah, I mean, kids kids will, will just sit in front of a monitor, you know, doesn't matter if it's an iPad, iPhone, TV, whatever, all day. So, um, you know... I, I think we did what every parent would do is, um, you know, we maybe give them an hour and then you go, okay, get up, go out and play, you know? And, uh, and then when you see that they're kind of getting tired, you let them go and, you know, you do that, uh, let them play a video game or let them watch some TV or, or whatnot. That of course went away when they started to get older, you know, they got their own iPhone cause we didn't let them get a, uh, phones until they were in high school. So, uh, you know, and they're still not on social media, Though our son Logan has um, a private Instagram account just so he can check in with his friends and he's post stuff about trains. Um, uh, but for the most part, they they're they're really good about TV time and they really they really don't do a lot of TV. They're on their computers a lot and and I think a lot of that right now is because of school. Um, but um, you know they they never we were very fortunate. Our kids really never got into 
social media. They're not on Twitter. They're not on Snapchat. They're not on any of that stuff. And, um, and they're like, they're really bad at responding via text. Like, you know, like, <laughs> you know, we're like, Hey, come down for dinner. And it's like, you, know, you got to shout, you know? And so it's, it, it, so I, you know, really the, the hardest thing that we have with them is just, you know, go to bed at a, at a decent time. But, you know, at 17, you kind of just even let that go. Uh, you know, we, we go to bed by nine thirty, ten 10 o'clock and, you know, if you guys are going to stay up, just make sure that you're up at the time that you need to go. But it, it, teenagers are just so weird, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and I think as parents, you're kind of done with them, too, you know, because my wife and I were like, you know, for the first like 14 years, we we're like, I just don't understand parents who are just like ready for their kids to go to college. I just I can't, I'm I'm just can't imagine that. And by the time they're 17, you're like, OK, I think I'm ready for them to go to college. <laughs> They just, it's, it's nature's way of kicking them out of the nest. <laughs> That's awesome. That's funny. That's really inspiring to hear that they're not on social media because that really terrifies me about having adolescence. The thing Someday. about social media is, you know, cause we didn't grow up with that is mm -hmm. they could say one stupid thing and it's there forever. They're marked for life. And, yeah. uh, and I, I really don't agree with, um, the cancel culture, um, kids are going to make mistakes. For example, um, it's not a kid thing, but uh, the Na our, our local paper, the Nashville Tennessean, accidentally put out an ad, like a racist ad, you know, like a full page ad from some, you know, wacko. And, uh, and instantly everybody online, I mean, this was within like an hour of it going out, was up in arms. You know, oh my God, I can't believe you did this. I'm canceling my subscription. I'm canceling my subscription. I'm canceling my subscription. Well, once the editor-in-chief found out, they did an investigation, and the person who was supposed to patrol that stuff got fired, and people were still angry, and my wife and I were like, wait a second, they did the right thing. Yeah. If, if, you, if you don't stand by people who do the right thing, you're giving them no incentive to do the right thing. If they're going to be labeled bad for the rest of their life, then there's no incentive for them. You know, you, you need to offer forgiveness mm -hmm. as a, as a, as a possibility. And, um, and I think kids are not, you know, not like that. And, and social media doesn't allow that, you know, um, people are digging up stuff that people said 10, 20 years ago and, mm -hmm. um, people grow, people change. And, and I just, I, I really believe in forgiveness and I really believe that, um, especially kids are going to make mistakes. And, uh, so long as they're sincere and they do make the changes, I say, let them, let them, let them be kids, you know, let them grow. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to be friends with them on, I guess kids don't even use Facebook. What is the social media platform du jour? <laughs> Once they leave the house and they get to establish their own social media presences, are you going to modern, are, are you going to monitor them? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I found, I found you guys because I'm, I'm stalking everything for animal crackers, you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm looking for, I'll find my kids wherever they are on the world, you know, wherever <laughs> that, whatever social media they plan on doing, I don't care if it's TikTok or Snapchat, I will be on there and I'll be monitoring, you know, but uh, I, you know, they're, they're good kids, but, but again, they're still kids mm -hmm. and, and it doesn't matter how much you teach them. It doesn't matter how much you prepare them. I, I'm 51 and I still make mistakes. You know, mm -hmm. you, you have to be there for them and you have to, you know, give them a heads up. Hey, just letting you know, you might not, you might, might want to take that post down, you know, Hey, just letting you know, this is, you know, 
you know, don't go there. I don't know. But uh, I, I think, you know, my mom is 81 and she still gives me advice. <laughs> you know, it's, I think, you you know, you, you're always going to need somebody who you can trust and, and your friends are not those people, you know, they're, they're, especially at 17, they're not those people. Well, simultaneously, I am more nervous and less nervous for when my kids <laughs> become teenagers. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> so let's move into talking about the movie a little bit. Just in a general way, what was it like to transform a book that you wrote for your kids into a movie that was for the entire world? It, it was everything you would think it would be. And and uh, I mean, the, the great thing was is that we actually got our financing from independent financers. There was no studio attached. Mm -hmm. So anything we wanted to do, we could do as long as it was within the budget. My wife was handling all of that. And so she, she was writing checks. She was scheduling. She was booking flights. She was, you know, doing contracts with the actors, everything. Uh, and my job was just to keep the story straight. But I mean, I got to I got to meet everybody from Huey Lewis and Michael Buble to Sylvester Stallone and Ian McKellen and Danny DeVito and Emily Blunt. And, and I was flying all over the world and I'm, I'm, you know, the hobbit hole, you know, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a good traveler, but, um, thanks to Xanax, I uh, was able to make the trips and, uh, and meet everybody. But I did everything any normal person would do, which was, can I get a picture with you? Will you sign an autograph? You know, I mean, I, I was like, this might be my only chance. So <laughs> I was just being told I was in full geek mode the entire time. And uh, and it was amazing. I, I got to I got to tell a story. Um, there was one part of the story where. Horatio was just monologuing and it's Ian McKellen who could read the phone book and sound fantastic. Right. Um, but I was like, you know, maybe this part is a little slow. What if, um, what if he broke out into song and, and you know, my, my studios, like my, my, my partners are like, well, two problems. One, we don't know how to write music. And two, he's a Shakespearean actor. He does not sing. And I was like, ah, we'll figure it out. And within, I think a week we had a song by, uh, uh, Dan Povenmeyer and Swampy Marsh, who created Phineas and Ferb, they wrote a song for us. And within a month, I was in London. Actually, no, my wife was in London. Um, and Ian McKellen was singing a song, a duet with Gilbert Gottfried, you know, <laughs> and, and it's goofy and it's fun. But that was what it was supposed to be. And, and you know, people, it's easy to look at an animated film and you compare it to a Pixar where they have $150 million, but we had $19 million. We had, a, you know, like almost a 10th of their budget, but anything that sounded kind of fun, like let's put a Huey Lewis in the news song in here. Let's do that. Like I have like what five, uh, musical montages who has five musical montages. I just, I was like, Oh, I like this and let's do this and let's do that. And so I was just trying stuff. My wife plays Petunia, the fat lady. My <laughs> son, Brendan plays Owen at 12. And Logan um, was just playing a kid in the crowd, but his voice hadn't changed at the time. So the studio in Spain thought he was a little girl. So he's a, he's a little girl in the crowd now. And he's okay with that, you know? Um, we just, anytime we, we just thought something would be fun, we tried it. And, and I think that was what I loved most about making the movie was um, I, I didn't not do something because I was scared to do it. 
Um, I, I, I just kind of went for it. And if it works, it works. And if it didn't, it didn't. But um, I'm okay with it. And, you know, the film, it's my first film. Like your first anything, your first painting, your first, you know, time driving, whatever it is, it's not going to be perfect. And so I just thought it's, I'm going to make mistakes. I might as well make huge mistakes and just have fun. And, and that's what we did. It was a great experience. I love that attitude. And you know we had questions about the Ian McKellen yes. musical numbers. But <laughs> your response was just great. Like, you wanted to do it, so you did it. That's awesome. <laughs> I know. And I know it's goofy. And, and, and again, I'm, I'll make no apologies for it because we did it because it sounded like a fun thing. And Ian McKellen went for it. I <laughs> mean, great. you know, <laughs> he was, he was nervous. My wife's like, you know, he was kind of nervous. He kept saying, are you sure you want me to sing, you know? And, <laughs> and, uh, but he, if you look at the videos and I've put a lot of behind the scene videos on both the Instagram account and the YouTube account and he's having fun. All of them were having fun. I mean, we didn't pay a lot of money. You know, again, we had a very small budget in animation. So, they weren't working on the film because we were paying them good money. They were working on the film because they liked the story. And um, and they they all were so nice. They would welcome me with hugs every time I would see them. And uh, they were just so fun to work with. And they, they in, in return, we didn't do what the, the Disney studios do. The Disney studios, they micromanage every line. They've pre-recorded with their, you know, with their... Um, storyboard artists and the directors, every line. We we didn't do that. What we did was we just said, here's the lines, play. Um, with with uh, Emily and John, that was their first movie together. They had never done anything together. This was 2015. And um, the the scene where, where uh, they're driving from the funeral and they op- he opens up the box of uh, crackers, um, Mackenzie says, I'm hungry. And this is what I wrote. Uh, Mackenzie says, I'm hungry. Zoe says, oh, there's a fruit stand. That's all I wrote. (laughs) But that's not what's in the movie. Uh Because John and Emily were just improvising everything. So it was, uh, well, she's hungry. Do we have anything? No, we don't have anything. We'll check under here. I I looked under the check under the, I'm looking under the sun. Oh, look, 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 a fruit stand. And then she starts singing, which you can imagine. We're all just going, why is she singing? You know, she's like, oh, I like to eat, eat eat apples and bananas and and there's a video because I'm reco- I'm just sitting there with my iPhone recording everything and you could see John's like kind of looking at her as she's starting to sing and then suddenly he picks up on it and then he comes in about you know a little bit ways afterwards and he kind of jumps in and and we're going okay this is so much better than what I wrote you know because what <laughs> I wrote was boring compared to that and and I think Danny DeVito and I think um, you know John and Emily they just really liked the room to play mm-hmm. and act and and just have fun and and as new parents they were having a lot of fun and uh, and I think that it was a very great collaborative effort to just say there's no egos here there's there's I mean if you guys think this is good, go for it. Try anything you want to. And they did. And and we had a lot, a lot of fun with it. Scott is recording today from his basement that does look like a hobbit hole. So I have <laughs> to know, did you talk to Ian McKellen about your hobbit hole basement? I didn't. It seemed, it seemed um, trivial, but <laughs> I did a portrait of him as Gandalf. And, and he signed it for my boys. And he wrote to Brennan and Logan, love uh, Ian McKellen, and he drew uh, Gandalf's rune 
uh, on the bottom of it. And oh, so cool. that That's was really so cool. He's, you know, it's funny because you see them as, you know, like I, I did a painting of Stallone as Rocky and I did a painting of Wallace Shawn as the Sicilian from the princess bride. And, um, you, you see them as those characters. We grew up with them as those mm-hmm. characters. And, uh, and for the most part, they are very gracious about that, but you know, they're, they're human beings, you know, it's like, I'm not Gandalf, you know, <laughs> I'm not, and, uh, you know, but, but, um, you know, in, in Stallone's case, he reveled in it. He, he, um, he was shadow boxing. He was telling me old Rocky stories and giving me encouragement. And, and it was, it was wonderful. You know, in McKellen's case, he was very reserved about it, but joyous to, to sign anything and whatnot mm-hmm. in like Wallace Shawn's case. Um, I think he was done, you know, stop asking me to say inconceivable. You know? <laughs> So he was very nice about it, but but it was just like I I you know I think everybody has their limits of how how much because I I think you know you get you get pigeonholed you get um, typecast and uh, but uh, some some actors really seem to revel in it and others uh, really just kind of want to move on to the next thing. So moving on to the next thing, talk to us about the circus. We talked a lot in our episode about how hard it must be to make a circus story for today, whether that's even appropriate knowing the history of the circus, uh, what a cruel and inhumane place it has been in the past for animals to work. Did you ever think about this as a controversial topic when you were writing the comic or making the movie? Yes. Um, uh, Brendan, um, my son Brendan, He's been volunteering at the zoo uh, since he was 12, and um, the story uh, that that is in the comic book are actually um, Owen and Zoe are my niece and nephew on um, on my wife's side, and um, Owen and Zoe actually use the cookies to rescue the animals because uh, Zoe can speak to the animals, and she finds out that they're being mistreated at the circus, and so they're given Esmeralda gives them this, the cookies to save the animals from the circus. And so that was the whole purpose of the animal crackers was to kind of give Owen empathy because he didn't believe his sister could speak to animals. He didn't believe all of that. He just wanted to see the circus. And um, once he was able to be an animal and speak to the animals, then suddenly he had empathy for the animals. And so that was the, the, the point of, of the book. And then when I wrote the screenplay, I aged them up and then Owen became a guy who's workaholic and, you know, this and that. And And the whole rescuing the animals seemed irrelevant. And then when I added uh, Buffalo Bob as the circus owner, he was such a nice, kind hearted person, him and Talia, that they would never have animals at the circus. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you look at the, the opening sequence with Horatio, there's no animals there. Um, it's, it's, it's jugglers. It's, it's, you know, you're, you're, you know, those, those kind of like a Cirque du Soleil type of, uh, circus. And so I, uh, got an email from PETA, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, back when the film was first announced. And I showed it to them and, and, um, they really, because they were concerned as well. And, uh, and so we, we talked about it and they wanted me to, take it, uh, which is typical. They want me to take it to the extreme. Like, can you not have them eating ham and eggs or bacon and eggs? Oh. You, know, can you, not, you know, you know, you says he'd like to have a cheeseburger. Can you make it a veggie burger? You know, things like that, you know? And, and it was, and it was, it was like, they, they have to say those things, but they are, they're like, we know you're not going to do these things, but we have to say it. And I was like, no, it's totally fine. But the thing that, that they 
that they really wanted me to change was at the uh, when when Zoe's circus is there for the first time and, and people are going, where's the animals? We want to see the animals. And they're shouting, animals, animals. They're like, can you change that? Because it makes it seem like the circus is no good without the animals. And um, and I and I was trying to find a way to to come up with that. And and at that point that we were doing that, the film um, got locked up in a bunch of you know bankruptcies and this and that or whatever. And then eventually got bought by Netflix and just put out without any editing. And I never got really. And I still have it. I, we didn't. We were talking about making it magical animals. Like everybody knew that they were magical animals, you know. And so it was like, where are the magical animals? And we were going to re-record the you know, the, the crowd chanting magical animals, magic. Um, so those are the things that, so yes, it is something that, yeah, my son would kill me if I ever did anything that would support, you know, animal abuse. And we also, um, I would have, we were talking even with PETA about adding like a, a, a PSA at the end, um, about that. But, you know, it's just one of those things where the plans were there and we just weren't afforded the opportunity to kind of do that. So, I do feel bad that people think that I, I do wind up trying to find anybody online who's talking about it to at least, you know, set the record straight and at least know what my intentions were and uh, and that there are no animals. Even the the horse that Talia is riding in the and in, in, during the Huey Lewis montage, if you look at the poster, it says in her horse Esmeralda. That's actually just Esmeralda who was turned into a horse. And uh, and so we did everything we could. There's no cages, you know, because um, when we were first doing designs, artists didn't know. So they were looking at circuses and there was, no, 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 we can't have any cages because there's no animals. And, uh, oh, okay, okay. So we did what we could to at least establish that. But all it takes is one uh, one scene to change the tone. And I think that one scene really changed the tone uh, for people to at least have them believe that um, it condones it. And, and obviously that wasn't my intent. Yeah, I think that's the case across the board with kids' content. It's just nuance tends to get lost. Um, yeah. But you're right. It was very clear in that scene when Owen jumped off the diving board as a horse and magically became a goldfish that <laughs> real animals were not involved. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did you have a question about who Owen's dad was, because that's usually the one that I get asked a lot. Oh, wow. <laughs> it didn't even occur to me. Deborah? I I had no questions <laughs> about okay, Owen. Okay, okay, good. Well, just in case anybody else yeah. listening does, um, essentially what had happened was um, the original script was, you know, the, the concept was a guy gets a, a phone call saying that he's inherited a circus. So you wouldn't ask, well, who's his father? You know, it was right. just you inherited a circus from a long lost uncle. Then the the backstory of Bob and Talia and, and Horatio became a, got a lot longer. And then we added in, well, wouldn't it be nice if Zoe and Owen met at the circus as kids? And so like during production, we kept adding a little bit more backstory, never thinking, well, people are going to wonder, well, how because his last name's Huntington. And those two brothers are Huntington, and they're his uncles. Well, is there a third? You know, is there a third brother? And yeah, you know, and so it just never occurred to me. So basically, the answer is I have no idea. It <laughs> never occurred to me, and it was just—it's one of those rookie mistakes that just you know slipped by. 
Well, so, now sorry. it can become part of pop culture lore. People will speculate yeah. for years, <laughs> never knowing. And then, you know, when you turn 70, you'll be like, people, stop asking me. Yeah, <laughs> stop saying I'm not going to say inconceivable. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, I'm hoping I could do a sequel. And uh, and then maybe uh, I'll write in that uh, Owen's dad was a chiropractor in Bethel, Connecticut or something like that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Always a taste for the dangerous, that Huntington family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which animal cracker would you eat? Cheetah. Yeah? Ooh. I always liked cheetah, the fastest land animal. I just And they're a cat, which is kind of cool. You're speaking right to Libby's heart. Deborah's daughter, Libby, <laughs> loves the big cats. Oh, they're the best. <laughs> uh, they, you know, we got lion and we, we have a lion and we have a tiger in animal crackers, but I just posted on Twitter, I found um, there's a thing called coverage, which Hollywood studios do. So when you send your script to a studio, the executives never read the scripts. They never do. They'll always say, oh, I read it. It was great, you know, but they never read them. What they do is they have someone do coverage, which is a book report, which is summarize, tell me, you know, how was it this? How was it? So they grade it. it how was, the, how was the, the structure? How was the characters? How was this? And they do a little summary and then a conclusion. And I just posted it in a very long thread on Twitter this morning, but I was kind of reading that. And the original script had Talia was captured by Horatio as a Black Panther. And so she was a panther this whole time, you know, whereas now she's a cat, you know. But uh, I was just like, you know, because I do, I love big cats. I just think they're so cool. So, yeah, sorry. Cheetah. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> So would you like to take a shot at our evergreen questions that we ask at the end of every episode? The first is, what movie or TV show for grown-ups does this compare to? I don't know if this really applies since you're the one who made it, but eh, let's give it a shot. <laughs> <laughs> Current or, or all time? All time. Man, Animal Crackers, uh, it's a family thing. <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind was Good Times. You know, I, I just thought of family and, and good times or happy days or something like that. But but, I, you know, it's funny. I see it as a family show mm -hmm. and, and, and an ensemble cast. And uh, so any anything like a good times or Jefferson's or or happy days or, you know, three's company, three's company's not a family show. But, you know, <laughs> one of those things might work. And after we compare it to a grown-up property, we also like to cast the gritty HBO reboot and think about how we would that. take it dark. So <laughs> when we recast, Deborah cast Will Smith as Owen. I remember. I cast the father-son duo of Brendan and Donald Gleason as Horatio and Owen. And Shannon cast Paul Giamatti and Mindy Kaling as Zoe's dad and Binkley, respectively. Do you have any thoughts on our gritty casting? Do you have any gritty casting I, of I your own? I thought they were great. Yeah, <laughs> I thought those were really, really good casting choices. I would love to work with all of those. Um, I, I will say originally we were, uh, Chesterfield was uh, going to be played by um, Robin Williams before oh. he passed away. Oh, wow. And, and all of his dialogue was written in, in Robin Williams' cadence by his uh his comedy writer. And so if you go back, I was really worried. Could Danny DeVito pull it off? Cause I, I don't know anything about that. I mean, obviously Danny's, you know, um, a legend and, uh, and, and an American tre national treasure, but, uh, <laughs> you know, he, he, he was amazing, but, 
I still sometimes see Chesterfield as Robin Williams. And uh, but um, we went through so many what ifs with you know casting. Um, Ian McKellen was the only one who I was like, no, it's got to be Ian McKellen and Patrick Warburton had to be Brock. Those were the two that I knew. But you know, we were uh, Justin Timberlake was um, he 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 really liked the script. He you know he was somebody we were talking to for Owen. And uh, Kaylee Cuoco was originally cast for Zoe from The Big Bang Theory, um, and so so for me, I you know it's, it's I still see some of these other actors you know in in these different parts and whatnot. And um, uh, but I I really like your guys' casting choice. I love Will Smith, and um, I we were originally there was a, a point where we were talking about having Zoe be played by uh, an African American woman, and uh, so. And at the time, the Chinese uh, investors, they they just couldn't get it through their um, their government's um, restrictions. You know, they, they they couldn't they couldn't have a mixed race in China. And and I almost walked away. I was oh, like, wow. it's, you know, at the time I was like, it's 2014. How how can that be still something? But it was just, you know, if you want this. $13 million that we're going to be putting up, you know, they have to be either Chinese or white or something that the Chinese people can, you know, but it, it we couldn't have that. And uh, so that was, that was really, you know, it was one of those things where um, I, a, a bunch of, you know, Tony Bancroft, my co-director for Mulan, uh, from Mulan, um, uh, Dean Laurie, who co-wrote the movie with me, they had to kind of talk me off a ledge and say, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You know, this is just one of those things where, you know, you still got Binkley, you still got Samson, um, you know, and you know, maybe the next movie, you know, we can have a uh, black lead and we can, you know, but um, it would be so much harder if I was a person of color, you know, to, to have accepted that, but it's it still, it's, it, I think Will Smith would have made a fantastic uh, Owen. And I think that would have made the film, a much more unique film. Um, is that, sorry, this is probably something I'll cut out because it's <laughs> so ill thought out, but we talked a little bit about the wild hair colors for Zoe and Owen in the movie. Did you put that in after you realized you couldn't have an African-American yeah. lead? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think there was, um, it was my way of adding a little more color to the, to, you know, to the cast. Um, I, and it's, it, it's, it's purely symbolic and, and it's, you know, it's not very powerful thing, but I just couldn't have a blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, guy. Um, it, it's just, you know, I wasn't doing it for myself. Um, it, it's, it's just, I felt that, I, I guess I felt a little offended, you know, and, and I just wanted to do something. It was like a little minor protest. Oh yeah, fine. He's going to have blue hair, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, no one's ever asked me about that. So that I, I'd say, keep that in. That's, that's a really good question, but it's just, you know, um, I, that article that we read, um, really shows that the world is changing and that it is becoming more reflective of the real world. Um, it's, it really is hard for certain countries to kind of pick up on that. And I, I remember when I went to Spain and, and I'm in Valencia, Africa is like right across the pond, you know, it's right there. And you're looking, you're going, 
everybody's white, everybody's Spanish. You know, how do you how do you not have Africans here? I mean, we have more Africans in America than you do, and you're right across the thing, and they're just this is Spain, this is there, and so there are countries where that that diversity isn't it's not like it is out here in, in America, and and you know with all of the the racial tension and all the problems going on, we forget that we're still at least you know trying to be that melting pot, you know, that America was, was supposed to be. And, and slowly, 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 I think our media is, is starting to reflect that. And, um, but it is, it is a challenge. And, um, and, you know, I, I feel like in some ways I failed, you know, with giving in to the, to the Chinese, but otherwise there just wouldn't be a movie. And so, um, and I think a lot of artists are, are put in that situation give up on your principles and, uh, and you get to make a living, you know, you get to feed your family. You know, again, we were on food stamps, you know, what, what do you do? And, uh, so we'll see, we'll see. Hopefully I can make up for it in the future. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us to talk about animal crackers. Again, this is really fun. I learned a lot. It's great to hear what your experience was like. Um, listeners, you can find Scott on Twitter at at S Saba and Instagram at at S Saba Art. Is Instagram where you do the Hamilton drawings? Yeah, I put posting okay. on uh, Twitter too, but yeah, all of my art is up on there on the Instagram. Yeah, look for those. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of It's My Screen Time 2. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts check out our website at myscreentime2.com. You can find us on all the socials, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Gmail at myscreentime2. Send us your show or movie suggestions, article recommendations, or general comments about the show. Our theme music was composed and performed by me and my adorable children, and our podcast is produced by Katie. Tune in next time for more real talk about the movies and TV beloved by kids and tolerated by parents. Bye. Bye. Bye.